All right, everybody. Let's uh, let's go ahead and get started this morning. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, there are a number of people out of town on spring break, things like that. So we'll go ahead and get started, and I trust some people will trickle in as we go. Uh, let me open us some prayer, and then I'll set up where we're headed today. Lord, uh, every time I set foot in this space, I'm so grateful for your provision and for the hospitality of Broadway and also for your people here gathered. Uh, Lord, we want to have um, your mind about these things, and we need the help of your spirit to unite us in our one faith and one baptism and one spirit that binds us all together and is making us your body. So abide with us now, dwell among us, we pray. Help us to operate in wisdom and love and courage. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Um, all right, let me, uh, here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to reset where we've been because this is kind of the midpoint. We've done three weeks. This is the fourth. I'm going to reset kind of where we've been. And then I'm going to do a little teaching on um, the socioeconomic realities of Jesus's day and how uh, that, how that's been one of the most transformative things to keep in mind as I've read the gospels that I've done in the last 10 years is to realize that the people, the people from whom Jesus came and to whom Jesus ministered are so far away from my day-to-day experience when it comes to almost everything, but very much. Um, I probably had more calories for breakfast than most people in Israel would have a day. And that's just crazy to think about. Crazy to think about. All right, quick summary. Uh, week one, we talked about mammon. And we named the current order of mammon. I named it as uh, neoliberal finance-driven capitalism, <laughs> right? And we talked about how um, the finance-driven, we'll talk more about this maybe today at the end, but finance-driven means that at some point in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, corporations went from making money selling vests to making money selling stocks to people who were speculating on the potential future value of the company that makes vests. So they went from making money by selling things to making money off of the idea of their profitability, which has changed a lot of things. And I'll just name one of those things now. Um, CEOs get hired primarily to improve the corporations value and corporations are valued based upon their stock price. And there's basically a quarter to quarter sprint where you want to see things. This is my up into the right. I think this is your up into the right, up into the right quarter to quarter. So uh, Catherine Tanner talks about this in um, Christianity and the new spirit of capitalism. She says that CEOs are primarily or even almost singularly motivated to increase the stock price, which means you are, you are going three months to three months to, to um, communicate to potential stock buyers and sellers that you are more valuable than you are. So, so this, what this does then 
is it is a it's a disadvantage to take your profit and give it to your employees because then it looks like you're not making enough as much profit. You're disincentivized to raise to raise wages because every wage you raise is subtracted from your bottom line profitability, which subtracts from the confidence of people who are buying your stocks, which means you're not going to be as far up into the right as you could. That's the finance-driven part of this. It's relatively new. And I'm going to give you some stats later about how it corresponds to CEO salaries from when I was born in the mid-70s to today. The, the, the differences in percentages of how much CEOs make is mind-blowing. And it's primarily tied to this. Okay? So um, we talked about then neoliberalism is... Uh, this understanding of uh, the human self as this autonomous decision-making thing. And liberalism has actually done some really good stuff. Like, um, and again, liberal is not Democrat, Republican. Liberal is, is much more of a philosophy that came out of uh, Catholic teaching. So then we talked about how, how, in what sense is money or mammon religious? And I talked about how um, enlightenment Modernity, secularism, neoliberalism, and I would say like the rise of, of, of our global capitalist economy um, relegated what we think of as religious to the personal, private, spiritual, interior. So religion was sort of sequestered out in the public square. The state takes care of the public. The church takes care of the private. So then what happened, you know, and I don't think this was like, a, there was nobody like doing this cackling, trying to make this happen. You know what I mean? It was just these confluence of forces over hundreds of years has the spiritual realm has retreated into the personal, private, interior, abstract, and non-material, spiritual, right? So my Bible is a spiritual thing. This cup of coffee isn't. That's part of what I would say is the illusion that we're living in. Okay. So Jesus assumes that the religious sphere is in contrast to where we live. He assumes it's communal. Right? The scriptures assume it's communal. It's public. It's material and concrete. Um. And of course, that includes personal and private and what we think of as interior or ideas. But mammon, uh, mammon shapes both interior and exterior, both personal and communal, both private and public. That was week one. Week one is just reclaiming what is religious. You know? All right, week two. Uh, Spencer talked about the problem of mammon can take the form of individual greed or desire, but it can't be reduced to individual desire. It's a, and he talked about how mammon orders and shapes our world. I love it when that thing shuts off, by the way. Orders and shapes, I know, does anybody else notice it? Does anybody else relax like 20%? Oh, My nervous system is like, kill all the machines. <laughs> um, if I can hear the machine, I don't want it. Um, it is primarily, mammon is primarily structural and symbolic rather than what we think of as moral. 
This is, I know this is hard stuff to get. Mammon, uh, because it facilitates our access to needs, wants, and desires, functions by default as the source of our values. Indeed, our very being in the world. We direct our time, attention, and devotion to mammon, not necessarily because of some moral weakness or because every head bowed and every eye closed, we raised our hands and accepted mammon into our heart as our Lord and Savior. But the world runs on money, on mammon. And so how is one to live in the world without it? Right? So mammon works. I'll say this is how mammon works. What I mean by mammon works, what I mean is this is how mammon reigns. This is how mammon, this is how the regnancy of mammon expresses itself. So mammon works through systems and structures that order and shape our common sense and desires. Let me give you an example. Um, there was, there's been studies like this, but I'll just give like an anecdote of the study. So this guy opened a gold necklace shop in the mall because why not have another one? You know, <laughs> what the world needs now. Um, and he, what he did was he, he, uh, he looked at all the shops in the mall and saw their prices and priced all his gold necklaces under all those shops and just sold them as it, sold them like that. And everybody was selling more than him. Uh, his friend who had a cell phone kiosk in the mall was like, the problem is your necklaces aren't on sale. Here's what you do. You uh, triple their price and mark them 75% off. Guess what happened? He sold more necklaces. He sold more necklaces. They, they actually sold at a greater price than what he had originally put them on. So part of the regnancy of mammoth Part of the way it orders and shapes our time, attention, and affection is that we, by default, without choosing this, we are, we are conditioned socially to appreciate value and to desire value without any way of knowing the intrinsic worth of something. So worth matters less than value. Now, if I was going to like build my life from the ground up, I'd want it the other way around. So this is, I'm, there are 10,000 artifacts like that where that's common sense. It's a deal, it's a bargain. The last house my mom bought before she died, she bought because it was a good deal. And it was, but it was an awful house for her. <laughs> The kitchen was completely separate from the entire rest of where people are. And my mom loved to cook for us. And, but then she couldn't be with us and cook. But, she, but because of her social conditioning, which is a lot like ours, she couldn't say no to a good deal. Even when it violated values that she would say she cared about more. This is how mammon works. You see what I'm saying? It's precognitive which is why we're talking about it to bring it up here. So we can go, oh, we want, do, we, do we want that? Do we want it that way? All right, that's second week. 
Do, 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 do. Week three, Ben talked about taxes, right? And we usually talk about, you know, how much money should the government get from us? and Where should the money go? That's typically how we think about taxes. Um, there's a lot more to say about uh, taxes that I don't want to go into right now. Uh, but let me just, let me share the, this is, this is from, from the time that our economy shifted from sort of a, uh, um, a, pro, a goods and services capitalist economy to a finance-driven capitalist economy. Here's, here's what's happened in the interim. Uh, between 1978 and 2015, the top 10% realized 115% increase in their income. Not bad, right? The top 0.001% saw it increase 700%. In 2018, half of the world's wealth rested in the hands of 42 people. And I believe, I believe, you can look this up. Google me, Google fact check me. That was 2018. I believe in 2021, it was like 27. In three years, in three years, the 27 most rich people increased their wealth so much that, the, that half of the world's wealth went from 42 to 27. The average CEO of an S&P 500 company in 2018 earns 287 times more than the median employee wage. In 1970, that was 30 to one. In 2018, it's 287 to one, right? So, so this, the finance-driven global capitalism, you know, you hear about the health of the economy a lot, that's a, that's a code word for, are the people who are wealthiest, are they getting wealthier? That's how we determine whether our economy is healthy, right? That's how mammon works. Now, if we were Christians and we were sitting down and we were saying, what would, be, what would we say is a, a, a life-giving, healthy economy? I'm not sure we would say consolidating the wealth in the 27 richest people in the world. I'm not sure we would come up with that, but that's how Mammon defines health, right? Half of the American population has seen no economic progress for nearly 40 years. And, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a dunker. There's a, there's a way too easy dunking on what's known as supply-side economics or trickle-down economics. I don't, I don't even want to do that dunk because it's, it's, too, it's too easy. Um, and finally, our economy, in terms of inequality, differs little from the gap between Roman senators and slaves and farm laborers who comprised most of the population in the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus. So we've got an economy that has created inequality that is commiserate with the inequality that people experienced 2,000 years ago. All right. It's a feel-good Sunday morning, everybody. <laughs> Here's Catherine Tanner naming, we're gonna get into today after this. Here's Catherine Tanner naming that dynamic I mentioned earlier. Across the board, measures taken by finance disciplined corporations to maximize profitability, prevent workers and employers from profiting together. Thus, even while making outsized profits, corporations cannot risk sharing them with the employees by raising wages, doing so, would only cut into company profit margins 
and thereby threaten the price of company stock. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a real problem. It's a real problem. Uh, one other artifact of this, um, there's a common notion that prices go up because of something called inflation, right? So oil costs more, so gas is gonna cost more, right? And we just kind of accept this as true, you know? But if you look at like the oil costing more, the gas costing more, and then you look at like the bottom line of profitability from those companies, they're going up too. And so one of, the, one of the ways I think we begin to unravel or denounce the regnancy of mammon is to tell the truth about things. Inflation isn't this scientifically, it has to happen. It's, it's a choice. It's a choice. I choose as whoever's making decisions to charge you $5 a gallon for gas rather than stop the up and to the right. So inflation isn't inevitable. It's a choice. Does that make sense? All right. All right, today, here we go. Uh, today we're talking about the widow, right? The widow's mite. And uh, I'm, I'm gonna preach about some things there, but let me just set up kind of you may have heard me say this before. Let me set this up. And then I want to have a conversation about, you know, Isaiah was pinging me about this this week. What are some of the ways I just named, I had like two ways where we can begin to like tell the truth about things. Like we don't have to repeat sort of the um, mammon mantras. We can tell the truth about things. Maybe there's other ways that you are beginning to, how do we confront mammon? One is telling the truth, right? All right. So we'll, we'll get there. All right, so here's the world Jesus lived in. 95% um, of the people in Jesus's day lived in abject, destitute poverty. Like hand to mouth. Um, and that was on, like on a good year when there wasn't a famine or a war. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, or you didn't suddenly get sick and dad died. Or, you know, all these other things that could have happened to you. Um, Herodians and their cronies, and they were cronies, they owned half to two-thirds of the land in Galilee. Uh, Roman provincial governors saw the territories that they were assigned to as like cash cows to be milked in order to amass the greatest possible fortunes in the shortest possible time. So when you were a colony of the Roman Empire, you were assigned uh, somebody like Pilate. And Pilate had basically two jobs, no insurrections and make them pay taxes. And Pilate wasn't paid, he had to, this is, this is what taxes were in the ancient world. They were, you have, you, you have to pay the emperor and then I'm the tax collector and I extort more money from you to get my salary. And then Pilate's extorting people around him to get to amass his wealth too. So it was just extortions. If you couldn't pay taxes, you became a tenant or sharecropper. So you defaulted on taxing and you, instead of paying taxes, you gave your land to Herod or Rome. And then you had to hire your labor out to work the land you used to own to pay off your debt. 
And so you got like loans and credit and there's a cycle of debt and chasing solvency. Sometimes people would sell family members into slavery to pay debts. So there was this cycle of crippling debt that you really could never pay off. And so when, when Jesus decries the scribes as devouring widows' houses, this may be one of the cycles he's talking about. That the most powerless, socially and economically powerless, marginalized people um, are the most exploited, the most, the most vulnerable. And the people who are charged with taking care of Israel are the ones doing the work of Mammon. So many uh, became tenant and sharecroppers to pay taxes. And if, if you either couldn't make enough to do that or you, you uh, defaulted on a loan, uh, you went to prison. So this is the major difference between prisons in our day and prisons in Jesus's day. Like if you murdered somebody or you stole something from somebody, it was punitive punishment immediately. So if I stole something from Brent, I would get my hand chopped off or uh, I would get 40 lashes and have to give it back. And if I killed somebody, I'd be killed. Those people didn't go to prison. That's different than our day. Two kinds of people were in prison. Barabbases, John the Baptists, so political insurrectionists, and people in debt. It was called debtor's prison. And they put you in prison so that then your family and your kin would have to work hard to redeem you, to ransom you out of that debt. So the courts then function to settle financial and debt claims. This is Jesus tells parables. If somebody hauls you before the court, right? This, this is, don't the rich do this to you, James says. Prisons were filled with people who couldn't pay off debts. So crimes were punished quickly. Prisons were for debtors and political ne'er-do-wells. So the rich then, when Jesus talks about the rich, he's talking about creditors, people who make money off of other people's poverty. That's how you got rich in Jesus's day. You didn't open a falafel shop and have the most successful falafel shop. That's not how you got rich in Jesus's day. The wealthy got rich by loaning money to people who were in need and getting interest and extorting more and more money from them. And the poor were debtors. <clears throat> so one person's poverty was another person's wealth. Does that make sense? This is just, if funk, so we could talk about some of the similarities in our economy today too, but it's so hard just to keep that in mind as we listen to like the just judge or the unjust judge, you know, we listen to these parables. What, is, what did a judge do? It wasn't like Judge Alito. This person was settling financial conflicts. All right. Moses's law. This, this had been going on for thousands of years. This was how the ancient world worked before the advent of the global capitalist economy. Things started working a little differently. <clears throat> and so that this, in Moses' law, this is why you have things like the Sabbath year. Every seventh year, land was to be left uncultivated. Debts annulled. Supposed to be observed 
uh, it's Leviticus 25, every seventh year to free people from this cycle of debt. And then you guys know the Sabbath of Sabbaths, every 49 year, the year of Jubilee, every debt forgiven, every slave free. Maybe your dad's been in prison for 14 years because he couldn't pay off that loan. Well, this Jubilee, your dad gets out of prison. The land that you that your grandpa defaulted on 40 years ago is returned to you. Herod doesn't keep it, right? We spiritualize Jesus's words in Luke 4. By spiritualize, I mean, we make them metaphors. They're not metaphors, primarily. They're primarily talking about actual people in debt getting out of prison. That's what they're, and everyone who heard that would have been like, finally, we're going to follow the law. Finally. Okay. I'm getting chills, you guys. Uh, needless to say, that wasn't being practiced in Jesus' day. <clears throat> Hadn't been practiced for a long time. It hadn't been practiced in a long time, which is why everyone was silent, stunned when Jesus said it. And, and they spoke well of him. And then Jesus was like, well, the Gentiles might benefit more from me than you will. And then they wanted to kill him. So, all right. I got more here to say. I realize I've been talking a while. Stuff about homes and how uh, we devour widows' houses today with banks. Fun stuff. Um, College loans, yep, gentrification, okay. Suburbs, schools, the uh, International Monetary Fund, yada, yada, yada. Okay, questions. Here's what I'd love to chat about. If you have questions about the readings, question, I mean, we had this great reading by Isaac Villegas about the poor pay my salary. This reading by David Bentley Hard about how um, which I which just found this week about how, you know, Luke's prayers. When you're, t so this is why I wanted to give you the layout of the ancient world. When, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, forgive us our debts as we forget our debtors, to people who are in debt or have family members in prison, they don't first think about some kind of abstract spiritual guilt. That's not how destitute, impoverished, poor people think. Because they don't know where they're. When they, when they talk about daily bread, they don't spiritualize it as like, I'm going to trust you for provision. They're like, okay, well, I don't know where it's going to come from. So thanks for this prayer, and I'll pray it. Right? They actually think about bread. Um, one of the things that was fascinating about David Bentley Hart's article was he talks about... Um, uh, lead us not into temptation uh, and deliver us from the evil one. He talks about how the evil one or the wicked man in the Sermon on the Mount is like the guy that comes to round you up to throw you in prison because you haven't paid your debts. That was like, the, the rabbis talked about this. This was in the writings, like it was the same word. And so we take it to mean like the devil or Satan, but, but I'm trying to hear this prayer as even to be on the mount listening to Jesus as a day laborer, wage earner, tenant farmer, sharecropper, with some people of my kin in prison 
and I'm, I'm not earning money that day. I'm not taking PTO. I'm not earning money that day. So there is this gamble that I am throwing everything. This I'm getting out of this cycle. It's the only thing I can do. I'm leveraging my future on what, what are you going to say to me? Like, that's the situation people were listening to Jesus in. And it's just not the situation we listen to Jesus in. And trying to keep that in mind as I read scripture has probably been the single most transformative thing that I've, as I read the gospels, reading it as a poor person. Um, all right, so questions about that, questions about, or ideas about, thoughts about, How are you being stirred and moved to confront mammon in your life? What are the questions and thoughts you're asking? What are the things you're thinking about? Yeah, Leah. I have a question about the training that you did at the beginning of the and talking about the inequalities in our current system nearing those in the ancient realm. And I suppose the, the tension that I feel is that in other times that I've been in conversations similar to this about wealth and poverty, the assumption of the gap is between developing, or uh, whatever the terminology you want to use, uh, first world, third world, or developed countries, developing countries. And so the rich implicates anyone living with the standard yes. of living yes. that we have in America. Yes. Um, and the way that you were framing it with like the 40, 42, or the 47 richest people, more of a like, Super wealthy, and then everybody else here. Yeah. 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 Are there? I I don't even quite know what my question is. Yeah. But I hear you. Who are the rich? Yeah. Who are the rich? <laughs> yeah. Who? Leah. Leah asks, "Who are the rich?" We are. I I think we have to answer that question with just you and me. I think if if we make more than forty six thousand dollars a year, that we're in the top ninety percent or we're wealthier than 90% of the other people who live. That's, that's what he said, something like that. So we are, we are. Um, and part of this is, if, I don't know, if you need to feel guilty about that, go ahead. But I'd rather, I'd rather actually learn to oppose Injustice, rather than just feel bad about it. So, so I think I think looking at America versus Haiti, and we can talk about why Haiti is so poor. If you all want to get into that, um, that's also how mammon works and whiteness. Um, we can talk about that, Leah. But then I want us to think about there's varying levels of complicity, I think, in what's happening, and I think we are stuck in a system that's engineered to create exactly to, to go from 42 to 27 to 10 to two. Like that's where our system's headed. And we're, I wanna talk about that as well, rather than just Haiti and US. We need to have both those conversations, I think. It's 
probably important for us to own, own that. But it's like for me, it's been crystallizing to not only own that, but also realize that me and most of the people I know in this country and around my age range, like if, if they received a diagnosis with severe cancer and had to go through treatment, they would, they, they would be broke because of what the healthcare system is in our country. And so there's like this nuanced web of all these different things, but it, like, these are all things that I was kind of loosely aware of, but now I'm thinking of like, oh, this is interesting because you like, you know, we all are okay, but the system that is uh, engineered in a way to go from 42 to 27 is also engineered so that most of the people in this room could go from where we're at to being completely broke in no time at all. But the corporations who are providing these things that we need are set up in a way that even if they made a catastrophic mistake, they would be bailed out or, you know, funded, or there would be more money printed. And, yeah. Which I think keeps us from having this conversation because if it's, if I sell my investments, if I do this and I get one bad diagnosis, then where am I? Right. Mm -hmm. right? So like, it makes you question the entire, like the entire deconstruction of mammon itself, yeah. Yeah. because yeah. I do have to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. And how do I do it outside of, you know? Right. Yeah, I'm sitting here thinking my retirement, having been a missionary, and I only have retirement savings, so I have an IRA, and I'm about to make a contribution for this year. And with what we just talked about, my investments are paying into a system that is keeping people from having wages. And that's kind of, I don't know, upsetting. Yeah. But what do I do? Yeah, that's, that's one of the things that's come out of this for me, is I... Uh, Isaiah, the first thing I thought of with your question about what do we do? I would love to be, I would love to have a group of us uh, think through how do we, I, I want, I, I got to put my money somewhere and I want to research the, the best place to put it that does the least amount of damage or the best, the most good it can do. Um, and I don't, I feel like that's something I could use help with, like com communally, like, hey, is there a credit union that's better than uh, Chase is the worst, you know, like better than Chase? The answer is yes, but like, you know, I want to break it. So that's one of my convictions. And I think that corresponds with, uh, I have mutual funds. What are they doing? You know, what? I don't know. Can I? Is the peanut gallery available? Yeah. Are they hurting? Is it hurting the environment? Is it you know, sweatshops? I mean, what? The, like the answer is all yes, probably, right? And, and then you said, yeah, we don't need to, yeah, we don't want to go there. Right. It's like you lift up the carpet and you see 10,000 cockroaches. And you, and you see they had a cat, that child you lost three years ago. And you're just like, let's put that carpet back down, you know? Yeah. Can I comment? Uh, I have like a million thoughts about like what we could do. Um, but that's, I mean, some, some crazier than others. But uh, just about like Leia's question too. I feel like what I think about a lot is something that you said, Matt, like a while ago in a sermon about Mammon, like, which is that like, for many people, like the problem was not that they like loved money too much. 
in Jesus's day, but like, it's not like, oh, mammon is like infiltrating their hearts. Yeah. It's like mammon was a hard master. Yes. And when I think about like our country, like sure, in some ways our standard of living is really hard, but I know so many people for whom mammon is a hard master, like a really hard master yeah. here, you know? Um, and that's not true for everyone. Like it may not be true for Josie and I, I don't know, but I know it's been that way in the past, right? So like, um, yeah, I guess that's what I like when I think about like the wealth, like there are like levels of wealth, but like for so many, 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 many of us, mammon is hard yes. and is not, it's not something that like we're being exploited, <laughs> not, and ensure we're caught in a system that exploits, but fundamentally like we're being exploited. Yes. Um, yeah. So that, I know that's, that's like the thought I have around. Yes. Like, you know, my friend making $50,000 a year, like, you know, I grew up with like five, four siblings on a teacher's salary. My dad was like, yeah, you know, yeah. it's you know, it like, man, was hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. A friend of mine, a friend of mine uh, who's um, a bail bondsman um, said, he came from abject poverty, said to me one time, he said, the best piece of advice I ever got was from a, this millionaire that I was a repo man for. Before I became a bail bondsman, I was a repo man for another bail bondsman. He was a millionaire. And, he's, and he said, here's the secret. Most poor people think that the rich make money off of the rich. But all the rich people know you make the real money off the poor. And it's true. Another way to say this is it's way more expensive to be poor than it is to be wealthy. And this is how mammon works. It's a cruel master. Um, I was at a, a conference this uh, yesterday in New York City. <laughs> crazy world. I'm, I'm living a crazy life. And uh, it was about patriarchy and about there were a bunch of women there and, and men. And women were talking about how patriarchy is awful for them. And um, I wanted to also say, and I did, patriarchy is bad for men too. And it's not just bad for like, you know, beta male soy flakes like me. Uh, it's also bad for alpha males. Now, I get that they've done a lot of damage and hurt a lot of women and, and men. So I'm not trying to say they're victims, but I'm saying that just because you're Jeff Bezos doesn't mean mammon's good for you, right? Doesn't mean that at all. Um, and I, I wanna be able to talk about that, that, you know, mammon is a cruel master with your boot on the neck, but if, if that's your boot, that's bad for you too. Yeah, Joel Austin. I find myself regularly wanting Joel's voice in us and among us. I think our sounds are all off, but I can. Oh, that's that's you, Spencer. All right, hey Joel. Hi, friends. Good morning. Joel, you want to? I just had. Hey, go I just ahead. Had a question. question. Um, I think it's very easy for for me to uh, to miss the forest for this for the trees in this conversation. And I wanted to ask a question that was prompted by something you said about um, uh, varying degrees of, of complacency. And the, the question is, are we framing that the system of mammon 
or perhaps the spirit of mammon uh, is, is the same yesterday as it is today and as it is in the future. And if that is true, are our human systems that we create to become more fair, more equitable to more people, are they, are they all lies? Are they not true? Is there any progress that has been made over the centuries of our history of civilization? Um, or is, is it all, all not true? It's still just as unequal today as it was yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Good question, Joel. You guys heard that basically? Um, Isaiah, you may be able to speak more to this than, than I can. Isaiah shared, or Josie shared a book with me a couple years ago about um, basically the book's premise is, I know it looks like everything's going to hell, but actually things are getting better. Right? Remember this book? Factfulness. Yeah. And, and the premise of the book is essentially like um, abject poverty is going way down and less children are dying before the age of four. And there's a proliferation of vaccines and medicines and um, those kinds of things. Um, so I think this is what I meant when I said like liberalism isn't all bad. There's a, there's a sense in which the human dignity and worth of every human is actually a much better place to be than say the ontological inferiority of women. <laughs> Amen. Um, this question is almost too big for me to like get my mind around Joel because I, I, I think I would like to say if a system was Christian, what would we see it doing? How would we know if a system was Christian or not? More Christian. Um, and so, so one artifact of that for me, Joel, and this is not, this is, this is my conviction. I think you can have different convictions here, but I'd love, I'd love to begin to think about this. I would rather, <clears throat> I would rather my tax dollars pay for health care for a single mom than I would to pay for uh, a military drone. And I think that I think that because I'm I think I'm thinking about this Christianly. Like I want to alleviate the suffering of the poor. I don't want to create more suffering and more poverty. Because I'm a Christian. So what kind of system would that necessitate then? Right? And and then you know you get into like conversations about well, is it a good system? Is it, you know, is it wasteful? Like we can have that conversation. But just on one level, Joel, that's what your question makes me think about. And I don't know if others have thoughts about it too. Mary Ellen. That, and, and this goes along with one of the readings and I have a feeling maybe I read the wrong week, but it's about speaking the truth. Um, and I feel like if we do not identify the root cause of what's creating the current system. If we don't speak out and say, this is mammon and this is what's doing to every single one of us, then anything we try to do to make it better or, and even corporations say they're making it better having studied 
like in, in my food justice classes, corporations who are trying to say that they are sustainable, they fulfill all these, it's like greenwashing. So they look good and they can say to everyone, I'm doing all this good, but underneath it all, they're still doing a lot of bad stuff. It's a branding. And it's a branding thing. And they're still fueling their bottom line and, and serving their stockholders, so their shareholders. So I, I think it involves speaking the truth and identifying the root cause of, of what's happening and then identifying, like you said, because of your conviction, this is, this is, this is the alternative and this is what I wanted to do. Yes, right. um, I think I think there's a there's a telling the truth that may feel performative or perfunctory that we don't think it is. Because we, we have to continually wake up to these things because we forget because the lie is so ubiquitous and demonic and just of course. Yeah. Right? We have to keep like each other. Right. Right. And I think that's an important work to sustain opposing man. Mm -hmm. Right? Like I need somebody to tell me in three weeks, remember you wanted to look for another bank, how's that going? Yeah, totally. And remember why you wanted to look for another bank? Like we need that for each other. Yeah. There's there's a whole class on on how the food system in our country is systemic injustice. A whole class. Tied to me. Let me go say something about it in my sermon. But you know, you know about this. I know I have to tell you about it. Yeah, that reminds me actually of, I think this ties in with Joel's question too, but you recommended a podcast a few weeks ago, uh, How the Rich Ate Christianity. Yeah. Which is pretty pretty spicy but uh but one of the things that they talk about is um there was this whole propaganda effort put forward basically around the 1950s or 60s i think but one of the like there was a book that was written i think it was called the devil's bushel and essentially like farmers had just gotten so good at growing wheat that they're like you can't make this much and like release it to the public or else it's going to have the devil's bushel is when you have so much that then there's it's not there's no value to it and so you have to withhold and so it's like technologically we were advancing and farmers were advancing to where it's like oh look we can like feed the world it's like yeah but if you do that you're not going to make any money and so that's it's kind of how that logic or that spirit can infiltrate and undermine some of these societal ad advances i think and kind of underlines some of what your your point is as well. Yeah. The devil's bushel. <laughs> I hate that phrase. I don't it I makes don't like it. it makes me <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it. Yeah. I have a couple stories that that's like connecting into stuff Mary Allen's saying and then your question about what, like what do we do? Um and I haven't practiced these stories. So <laughs> I'm like, how do I do this? But like last week, for example. I was having a meeting with someone at the state who's in the Department of Ed, and she's having a really hard time getting people on board with a plan to help marginalize students, basically, right? So students of color, students in like rural areas, right? Who don't have a lot of money. And she's just asking for help. So I was giving her pointers on things she could do 
and um, was like, okay, here's different data you would track. And then I was like, I'm gonna let you know right now, I don't like this, what I'm about to tell you. It's not good. But what you have to do if you want this to work is you have to show a return on investment. And I was like, and I don't like it. And then she was like, no, that makes sense. I need to, we need to show economic impact. And I was like, it's not good. These are kids, it's humans. That's all that should matter yes. for us to invest in this. Yes. But if you want this to go through, you have to show a return on investment. But it's like me naming, it was like me practicing naming mammon in the room but also saying, and I don't like it. Yeah. And like, this is our reality that we have to deal with. Yes. But like, I can't tackle mammon for like an entire state legislature. No. <laughs> like that's not gonna be possible, but maybe if like all of us over time collectively start naming it, like Mary Ellen's saying, like the truth in the room, then maybe that will do something eventually. It's not gonna do something this year, I don't think, but maybe it'll do yes. something eventually. And then the other story I was going to say, I'm glad you mentioned bail bonds because this came up this year. There was a new law that was just signed last week where nonprofits can no longer pay bail for people with um, violent offenses if they're charged, not even convicted, right? Like you're just charged. You're not even guilty yet of a violent offense. Nonprofits, nobody can make charitable giving. And that affects poor people. It does. And, and organizing, right? I mean, that's like- Yeah, the, it affects the, organization. Yep. The catalyst for it, I think, was the Black Lives Matter protests, was the fact that there was a bail fund. And so not only does it affect poor people, but if we, as the people, want to get together to try to do something, now we're prevented from doing it. You actually have to just be wealthy to be able to bail yourself out. So if you hear people say things like abolish prisons, it's not because they want crime. It's because they think the prison system is criminal. So there's two about 2 million people incarcerated. And at any given time, almost half of them are in prison because they can't post bail. They're not convicted. They're just in prison because they don't have money to get out. Then we still have a debtor's prison, basically. And so when people say abolish prisons, they're not being, they're not being fanciful. They're not, they, aren't, they don't love crime. They're saying we have a, we have a uh, criminal injustice system and we have to dismantle it because it's perpetuating injustice as it tries to deal with crime. That's one example of that. Right, Isaiah said the cure is worse than the sickness. Yes, it's like dropping a bomb on a city to, to knock out criminals. You know, that's what we do with cancer too. Sometimes we just throw radiation at your body and hope enough good cells live and bad cells die. It's the same kind of idea. There's way more to say about criminal justice and prison systems and the punitive retributive sense of justice that are they're built on. Yeah. Uh, 
I'll just say, I'll say this. Uh, one of the reasons why we care so much about asylum seekers and refugees, um, I mean, because the scriptures tell us to, but one of the reasons they tell us to is because most refugees, asylum seekers are created by injustices due to war and poverty. And the Old Testament, New Testament too, but the Old Testament in particular is powerfully consistent. God will be, God will be like summarizing his entire covenant with Israel. And it's very general. And then he always mentions the poor and the widow and the immigrant, always in that. And I, 10, 20 years ago, I was like, why does God keep bringing this up? This seems small in comparison to this grand reframing of what God's about. And it's not, this is not small. Um, <clears throat> there is a reason that so many people are seeking asylum and entry from Central America, South America, and Africa. There's a reason. And it rhymes with mammon. <laughs> like we've created, the U.S. and its economic policies have created economic and political instability on purpose so that the American economy can benefit from leaders that may not be great for Ecuador, but they're really good for Chase Bank. Right? And so there, I, I see us seeking to like welcome in people like Koki and Chinje as opposing mammon. We're, we're, we're trying to heal some of the wounds that mammon has wrought, whether it's colonialism in Africa or whether it's the decade after decade after decade of meddling in Central and South American politics to create essentially um, client states, even overthrowing democracies to create client states. It's not just, it's not just the US too, right? And so I France. Yes, Belgium, France, Britain, US, yes. Um, but even like telling those stories, so like, I was an American history major in, in college, and I had to teach myself about the School for the Americas, about uh, Cardinal Oscar Romero being assassinated, the Catholic priest, by assassins trained by the CIA. Like, I had to teach myself that. Um, so, like, even telling those stories, and, you know, we can begin to, we can begin to think about that. And, and allow that to populate kind of how we navigate the world. Well, Josie and Isaiah and I were sitting on the porch the other day talking about a lot of this and my brain gets so overwhelmed sometimes with the like the big picture stuff and it just shoves me down into a hole and I'm like, I can't deal with it. Yeah. Um, and so I do feel like I am so much more prone to be like, okay, I'm just going to like what is it in my life or whatever? And just thinking about that idea of like, um, just speaking the truth. And you were talking about speaking the truth, like these magic, these huge things. And I'm just thinking about like, I feel like it's been so good for me in these 
you know, past couple months or whatever, to be able to just speak the truth of my, in my own, just my own life, like Mm -hmm. to myself of like, okay, you know, like when I'm, and I think that actually Lent has been a really good time to be able to speak that truth. It's like, why is it that I'm wanting to go after this thing? Like, what is the thing that I've given up? A lot of times it actually comes back to mammon in some way, to my own comfort, to my own security, to my, you know, like building my own little safe empire. Um, And I just think that like, as we're talking about being able to speak the truth, like also turning it on our own personal lives and saying like, where are we speaking the truth? Even if it's just as simple as like, why am I wanting to go to chocolate 10 times a day? You know what I mean? But like, where my, where's my own comfort actually mammon and actually hurting up? Like it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah Marissa. Um, we probably need to wrap up. Thank you for that. I, I want to return to something Josie said maybe as we close. Um, there, there is a tension there's a tension between like, you know, keeping our hands clean, being ideologically pure and saying something like, they're gonna wanna see return on investment, but, but that's awful. And so just go for it and tell them it's gonna cost more than it'll return, right? And then there's, well, this is how the system works. And unless you can dance for the, as a mammon monkey, you can't do this goodness that you want to do. And I think all of us are in that. All of us, right? So what you that little story is like every day. It's every day, right? <clears throat> and I think what I'd like to I'd like to be a kind of people who know how to, for instance, be a Hebrew midwife and hide some babies, right? Um, which God celebrates. And, you know, the Hebrew midwives had to lie a little bit. They were tricksters, these, these Hebrew midwives. Like we have to learn how to be holy tricksters in order to redistribute, save some babies, redistribute as we redefine and tear it down. And that as a creative, faithful, communal thing, it really is. Um, and so I don't know how we fund that. I, I, do, I did say something about wanting to have stories on a weekly podcast. And then I looked at my schedule and laughed at myself. There's just no way right now. Um, but but I, want, I do wonder, Josie, like you telling that story and how you have to navigate that as a state employee. And Mary Ellen, you telling your stories about you're learning about food and food TM and, and all this big food and all this stuff, you know, Spencer, as you learn about like, what does it mean to be a real estate agent that um, like, what does it mean to be a real estate agent that is continuing to deal with centuries of racialized mammon injustices? I just read a study that um, neighborhoods' home values are impacted by racial composition 
to a larger extent by race in 2015 than in 1980. So it's getting worse. You know, you see those stories where um, a, a home appraises for a certain amount when there's uh, pictures of black, a black family in the home. And then they take the pictures down and they bring the appraiser back and it appraises for more. Like there's these things, like how, do you, how are you a holy trickster in the real estate industry? And what do we, how do we help that? You know, I think these are questions that we need to answer and talk about. Um, I'll just share one more and then, and then we'll close. My, one of the things that I need to discern right now is uh, when I moved to the suburbs, I was woefully naive and ignorant about why suburbs exist. And now I know more and I hate myself. No, I, it's hard. It's hard for me. It's really hard for me. I feel like I'm violating my conscience in many ways. One of the, one of the brass tacks things that boils down to is um, the schools that my kids are in are like the best in the state. They're so good that you can't pay for those schools anywhere else here, right? Um, I mean, part of the way I've learned to value education is because of mammon. I know that my value for my education of my kids is tied to whether or not they will be able to be successful in an economy. Now, I don't want them to be unsuccessful, but how should I value that? What's the opportunity cost of moving somewhere, taking them out of really good schools and putting them in not as good schools where uh, the neighborhood maybe is less compromising for my conscience, but what, what I'm, but I'm playing with my kids. Like my kids are the ones who are bearing some cost of that. How do I evaluate that cost? I don't know. I don't know. I do know my wife and I don't see it the same way, but I think that's, we come by that honestly, because we don't know how to ask these questions. And each of us will have one of these questions too. Each of us, you know, on our own. So these are the kinds of, I, I, I guess this is a long way of saying, I benefit greatly, Josie, from hearing you talk out how you have to do this at work. And I'd benefit greatly hearing you tell the story about your farm and what you're trying to do and the obstacles to that. And Spencer, real estate stuff. And, you know, I could just ramble about uh, home values and schools and, and why, you know, why our schools are better. It's money. It's money. And, and others, right? Others of us too. So maybe, maybe there's a way of just sharing these stories like, I don't know, tales from the journey or something. I don't know. That's so, I'm just going to pray. God, <clears throat> uh, we, we, uh, we do feel like we're, um, I feel like I'm staring into this um, bottomless chasm. And uh, maybe it's good for us, me, to feel the weight of it. Um, but God, we don't want to just feel bad or feel paralyzed, like Marissa said, just like shut it down. We, we actually do want to oppose and, and uh, oppose not by just raging against the machine, but by, but by creating something better. 
So teach us how to love in creative goodness. Teach us how to value according to the kingdom. And teach us, uh, give us conviction where you want us to start so that um, you know our frame, so that we don't just get overwhelmed or on tilt or blue screen. Uh, we commit this community, this conversation to you. Uh, we do pray to hell with mammon. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.